we will find in the midst of those verses our text, the verses 9 and 10, which is is our Bible's habit. The editors of our Bibles have added parenthetical markings, parentheses on either side. Those are added. Those aren't from the original text. They're properly added. They're rightfully there, but it is just worth noting they're not in Paul's original letter. They didn't use parentheses, um, but it is definitely a parenthetical comment, and we'll see something of that together tonight. But we'll start at verse 1, and we'll read to verse 16. Hear the word of God. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he said, or it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 9 and 10. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ is a topic that can be um, applied in almost any direction. Uh, when we think of the birth of Jesus Christ, we cannot but think of it in terms of his coming to die on the cross. When we think of his death on the cross, we cannot but think of it in terms of Christ's payment for our sins, his resurrection, bringing new life. But when we think about the ascension, there's almost no direction of life, no aspect of our faith and of our walk that isn't impacted, affected, altered by the fact that Jesus Christ has been or is the ascended Lord. There is some obvious ways in which that true, very comforting and encouraging ways, certainly in terms of our faith, what it means to be believers. We have great comfort in the fact that our ascended Savior has done what the high priest of the old covenant pictured for us when he went on Yom Kippur into the very holy place, bringing the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of his people. Jesus ascended so he could present on your behalf the sacrifice made on the cross, and by presenting that to the Father, might thereby obtain your salvation, your forgiveness of sins, your life. 
And so Jesus' ascension into heaven, when looked at from that perspective, is of great significance, comfort, and foundational importance for the spiritual life of every believer. Even as we can live and die in the knowledge that our ascended Savior is at the Father's right hand. We can live because we know that He's King of kings and Lord of lords. We can live under His reign and rule. We are not fools. We are wise. Those who bend the knee to the sovereign of all of life are not fools. They're wise. Though our world does not acknowledge Jesus as the King of kings, that doesn't mean He's not. It just means they're fools for having failed to live in the way that, the king, uh, or that pleases the king. We can live, we can sacrifice ourselves, we can do the things that our world finds so foolish, so strange, precisely because we know that Jesus Christ is king. We do these things with an eye to the kingdom of heaven, to a righteousness that is ours in Christ, storing up treasures in heaven because Jesus Christ is king. But we can die as well knowing that our flesh has ascended into the very presence of God. And so our bodies, when they're laid in the ground, that is not the final resting place, ultimately, of our physical reality. We go to heaven, we go to Jesus, and we know that one day when He returns, our bodies will also be raised, and we will live in this body upon this earth for all eternity. There's so much about the ascension that is central and significant to our spiritual lives as well as to our lives practically the way that we do business the way that we relate to others around us the way or the, rather the schools ultimately that we attend do you know that the schooling that you enjoy as children is a consequence and is a reflection of Jesus Christ's ascended nature that he sits at the father's right hand you see we know the church knows that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. That, as Abram Kuyper said long ago, there is no part of all of creation where Jesus doesn't say, this is mine. Jesus says, mathematics is mine. History is mine. English is mine. All of the studies of school are mine. So that when we're learning, when we go to school to learn, we are to learn how Jesus is king in all of these areas. How he is Lord of our minds, Lord of our world, Lord of history, Lord of our speech. That's why Christian education is so very vital. Because it's the only education that knows the truth. That Jesus is the ascended Lord. The ascension of Jesus Christ is extraordinary, extraordinarily practical in many, many ways. And we could go on and on applying the ascension of Jesus Christ to all of these various areas of our lives, discovering how the fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of God blesses and benefits us on this earth. But I wonder if we would ever get to the application Paul offers in Ephesians chapter 4. For what do church unity and the ascension of Jesus Christ have to do with each other? Here's where we need to again just note those parenthetical or those parentheses around our text, which tell us that the editors of our Bible understand rightly that Paul is making a statement that's, you might say, a little out of place that it doesn't quite fit. It's, a, it's an aside, you might say. It's a, it's a point that, 
that doesn't quite follow the flow of his argument. Because the flow of his argument in Ephesians 1, and indeed, in, or in Ephesians 4 rather, and much of Ephesians, concerns the unity of the church. The early church would have been challenged by unity by virtue of the Jewish-Gentile uniting, mixing together in the church. That was a difficult thing for the early church to have to handle. We know that from the New Testament writings, from the book of Acts, from so many of the letters of Paul and of the other writers in the New Testament. We know that it was hard for the Jews with their culture and way of doing things and way of worshiping to welcome in Gentiles who had none of that history, none of that experience, and who didn't want any of that culture. It was a challenging thing for the church to remain united. It's always challenging for the church to remain united. We've learned something, I think, of that also in these past number of years during the pandemic. I think the Lord has blessed us as a congregation in many ways through this pandemic without question, but even even we have experienced those tensions, those stresses, those pressures of, of all of the rules and regulations that have caused us at times to feel a little alienated, a little apart from one another. We've felt the pressure and the struggle, and, and we have experienced brokenness and, and scars and wounds. Indeed, some of us remain still wounded because of what we endured, what we experienced during the time of the pandemic, even within the church. And it's not hard to understand why. It's so very easy, especially in times of great moment like the pandemic has been, for us to get focused on the things of politics, on the things of medical science, on the things of positions this way or that. That's, that's an easy thing to do. It's human nature. We know it's human nature because that's exactly what's going on around us in the world in which we live. Look at our world and see how it's fracturing. See how it's becoming tribal. See how it's becoming divided by various categories. Are you blue or are you red? Are you this class or that class? Do you hold to these views or those views? Our prime minister speaks of a fringe minority, people that have unacceptable views, and nobody rises up to castigate him or to say that's not right. No one says, listen, that's no way to speak of your fellow Canadians. A lot of our fellow Canadians went, yeah, that's about right. Because we've become tribal, because we've been separated into different ethnicities, different economic classes, different political classes, and now we fight with each other for power. That's human nature. Human nature is to divide, to break, to, to replace the unifying power of God with some idol, ultimately, my own opinion, my own perspective. You see, that's what must happen. If there is no unifying, or if our unity, rather, is not found in Jesus Christ, then our unity will have to be found in some preference, some opinion, some priority that that I have. Then I will find myself seeking out birds of a feather so that we can flock together. Because I want to be with people that think like me, that talk like me, that act like me. That's our world. That's the church increasingly. Church unity has always been a hard thing. Paul knew that. That's why he wrote so much about it in the book of Ephesians. That's why chapter 4. And certainly all those 16 verses, if we exclude 9 and 10, 
That's what they're all about. If you take verses 9 and 10 out of chapter 4, it is one long appeal to unity. You, you have those lovely words at the beginning, those familiar words, those repetition, those seven times that he says one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then Paul talks about how Christ has apportioned gifts so that this one body can be a blessing to each other. Indeed, that's how it ends, isn't it? With every joint being held together, which with each, when each part is working it properly and making, thus making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul sees the church as this lovely organism, this place where there are disparate different gifts and those gifts are used to bless everybody and when everybody's being blessed, the church grows up. And he, and he speaks significantly of the officers of the church in this regard. He mentions apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, equipping the saints for the, for the uh, um, work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We have leaders who are helping us minister to each other. This is an entire set of verses that if you took verses 9 and 10 out, you would say are all about church unity and how we can maintain it and how we can enjoy it and how good it is and how it blesses us. And stuck in the middle of it is this business of the ascension. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And then off he goes again on church unity. That's why the editors of our Bible put those little parentheses there. Because they say, wait, this is a parenthetical comment. But it is very much at the heart of what Paul's trying to say. Also about the way that we are to treat one another within the church. Now the most immediate reason for Paul's referencing the ascension of Jesus Christ has to do with his quoting of Psalm 68, the psalm that we already sang at the very outset of our service. There he says, when he ascended, that is Jesus, on high, he led a host of captive and gave gifts to men. Now, there's a couple things about that that are worth talking about. The, principally, the fact that Paul turns the, 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 the language around in Psalm 68. It's not that he gave gifts to men, it's that he received gifts from men. Psalm 68 pictures an Israelite king, think David, think Solomon, think one of these great kings of Israel, Josiah. Think of him coming back from the battle. Think of him having defeated his enemies. And now with his troops, he begins the climb up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on top of a hill. And so to get there, you had to ascend into the mountains to Zion. And so the king, with all of his victorious army and all of the loot, all of the wealth that was captured in the battle, are making their way up into Zion. They're ascending. The king is ascending. And he's receiving gifts from men. Paul says, well, he gives gifts to men. And that's caused all sorts of consternation and discussion and commentaries. But I think Calvin's got it right when he says, well, Jesus doesn't receive gifts just to keep them. He receives them to dispense them. Paul's understood exactly what the psalmist has in mind, that the king receives so that he might give. So there's really no uh, great distinction between Paul's words and the psalmist's words of Psalm 68. And for Paul, it's the giving of gifts, of course, that he wants to emphasize. 
But having spoken of the ascension of an Israelite king to Zion, quoting Psalm 68, Paul stops for a moment and thinks, wait a second, I have to clarify that I'm not talking about one of those Old Testament kings or even anyone like them. Because, of course, Jesus was so very much different, wasn't he, than David or Solomon or any other Israelite king. Kings that came from the earth, lived upon the earth, and eventually died upon the earth. Oh, no, says Paul. Jesus isn't like that at all. Because this ascended king first descended. You see, that's what he says in verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Now, our translations do a lovely job of solving what is a challenging in exegetical translation issue. There is in here a phrase that can sometimes be used by some to suggest that Jesus, when he died, descended into a place called hell. That he descended into the lower regions of the earth, into underneath the earth, at least the grave, but even maybe hell. But our Bibles have done us a favor and done us a service because they've rightly translated and understood what Paul is saying when he compares the ascended Savior who went from earth to heaven as the one who first went from heaven to earth. Paul's not saying that Jesus descended into hell, though on some level, of course, that's true. We confess that in the Apostles' Creed that he bore and experienced the full wrath of God in throughout his life, but especially at the end. He didn't go to a local place that's called hell. He didn't go to that place where the enemies of God are are under the wrath of God eternally. No, he experienced the wrath of God throughout his life. That's true. But Paul's point here is not that. Paul's point here is that the ascended Savior who went from earth to heaven first went from heaven to earth. That makes him a very different king. That's not Solomon. That's not David. That's not Josiah. There's only one who first descended. And it reminds us, doesn't it, of exactly why Jesus came. It brings to our hearts and minds that incarnational reality of our Savior taking on human flesh as the very Son of God become man, that He might dwell among us, that He might die upon the cross, that He might rise again. He descended. He humbled himself to the lowest. He made himself a little lower than every one of us. Suffering for us upon the cross. Being despised and rejected of men. The ascended Savior, you understand, is the Savior who took on flesh. Why did he have to take on flesh? We know the answer, of course. Because we're sinners, sin had to be paid for. Because we ruined the world, He had to restore it by His sacrifice. He came to undo. He came to do battle, if we keep the imagery that Psalm 68 offers, with the very powers of death and darkness, the devil and our own sin. He came from heaven so that he might definitively and perfectly do what David, Solomon, Josiah couldn't do. They could 
picture the victory that the Savior was going to bring. They could show in their victories over the Philistines, over the Edomites, over the Assyrians and whomever else, that Jesus was going to come and free free from slavery, free from pain and suffering, free from the brokenness of this world, his people by his sacrifice. They could picture for us the blessedness that would come to those who belong to this king. But they could only picture it because only Jesus can accomplish it. Only Jesus can lift that which causes us such grief, that which breaks relationships, causes divorces, sends children and parents apart, friends angry, speaking words of hate towards each other. Only He could break the the pain and the sorrow that brings nation to fight against nation, that brings war and, and pain and suffering into this world. At the root of all of those things, we know are the selfishness, the pride, the arrogance of man, the cruelty of sin. The thoughts of men's hearts are wicked all the time. We know that. And what hope then have we, what hope has anyone to overcome such great a power and enemy? Can you break the cruelty that is in Putin's heart? Can you make Justin Trudeau understand that abortion is brutal, awful, and wicked? Our world chases sin can you possibly hope to stop it can any politician can any supreme court justice the answer is no no and no the only one who can do battle with the very power of sin and make his enemies cow before him is the son of god in the flesh the ascended savior who first descended and did battle for us defeating our enemies upon the cross so that we might be free paul understands with the brokenness of church of, of of disunity the brokenness of relationships comes from he knows it comes from the power of sin And he reminds us when he speaks of the ascended Lord who first descended that he came as the very Son of God in the flesh to do battle for us. That in him we too might be more than conquerors through him who loved us. You begin to see then that the ascension of Jesus Christ cannot be understood apart from his ministry on this earth, his incarnation and his work of sacrifice and of suffering upon the cross but that it is precisely because that's the uh, savior who ascended that we have such hope that we have such power that we have such blessing because you see as paul goes on then in verse 10 to say he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things a reminder isn't it of just how great and glorious our savior is for he has been ascended far above all the heavens now that's a bit of uh, artistic license there of course we wouldn't say that jesus is somehow physically so very far above the heavens but he is seated isn't he at the right hand of god he is at the pinnacle he's at the very height of all authority and power and dominion all the angels, all the 24 elders, all the living creatures, all the myriads in heaven worship Him for He is 
the ascended Lord. And He has ascended so that He might fill all things. This isn't a comment on the ubiquity of Christ, on the enormity of Christ. God, you know, is everywhere present at all times. But this is more about how His work of sitting at His work of the ascended King of applying the plan and purpose of God, the scroll that He received from His Father, how that is a work of extending the kingdom of God so that it encircles and claims the entire earth. Indeed, this very passage helps us understand how it is that the church continues through all the generations and for thousands of years where nations have come and gone, empires have risen and fallen. But the church, begun with such a small group, suddenly has spread over the entire globe so that even in our day it grows and grows and grows at a magnificent pace. Oh yes, the world in which we live is more harsh to Christianity. There have been more martyrs in the past 100 years than in all the years before. But there are more converts too. There are more Christians too. The church continues to grow. The church continues to be blessed. And how do we explain that? How do we explain the abiding presence of a group of people that are committed to peace, that are committed to sacrificial service, that are committed to blessedness, that do not take up sword or trumpet, weapon or war, but with deeds of love and kindness, minister the grace of God to all the world. Indeed, that's what Christ calls the church to do, doesn't it? Doesn't He? When you think of Matthew 28, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, then he says, therefore, go into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them to observe all that I command you. For lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. He calls the church, doesn't he? To be a witness, to be a light upon a hill, to city upon a hill, to be a light upon a stand. The church is called to spread the knowledge of Christ's kingship far and wide. And while we mourn and while we grieve over the decadence and immorality and the decay of our society, the truth is this gives us an opportunity to shine all the brighter. This gives us an opportunity as a community to stand out all the more starkly in a darkening world. In the dead of night, you see the lights of the city. In our part of the world, you can see Rosa Flora's lights from a long way away when there's clouds in the sky and the light bounces off of those clouds. That's the way the church is to be. You can't see that during the day. You can't see those. The lights are still shining undoubtedly, but you can't see it. In the darkness, you can see it. The church has an opportunity now to be that light, to stand out as distinct, to say we understand the reality of this world. We know what's true. We know what's real. And we know how to live in this world in a way that is good and blessed and beneficial. Oh yes, we are broken. We are not perfect. We don't mean it in any way like that. We stumble along. We falter and fail. 
But we do it together in praise and in glory to God. Indeed, in an increasingly tribal and fractured culture, the unity, the community of the church, especially when there are differences of culture, differences of politics, differences of attitude that are transcended because we say, Christ is my King, and He is your King too, and therefore you're my brother and you're my sister. When we rise above the fray of the natural self, when we no longer look at the world through the lens of sinful eyes, when we no longer make it about our priorities, our politics, our attitudes, but we say as Samuel did so long ago, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. When we understand that we've been given gifts for the purpose of blessing others, Not always nice others, not always easy others. When we recognize that we are to pattern our lives after the example of Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh and dwelt amongst a stinking, sinful, foolish people and still showed them grace and love and kindness. When in a world of acrimony and accusation, of division and of destruction. The church can testify to the ascended Savior's power and their commitment to living to advance His cause and kingdom by being one, by being united. Indeed, this is why the Lord has ascended and given His gifts to men. That's what Paul goes on to say after the words of our text. That those gifts the ascended Savior's poured out, He's poured out for the purpose of the church growing, one, united, in the unity of faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we might no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are growing up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul says, you see, the ascension of Jesus Christ has a great deal to do with church unity. It is the ascended Savior who equips. The ascended Savior who blesses, who sends office bearers, who sends gifts amongst the congregation. Think of 1 Corinthians 12. And says, now I want my church to be a picture of grace and love and peace. Oh yes, there are differences and we've got to work through those things. Oh yes, there are disagreements and we've got to work through those things. Oh yes, we can have strong conversations, undoubtedly. Jesus did too, even with his own disciples. To speak the, word of, to speak the truth in love is not always to speak softly. Sometimes it's to say, get behind me, Satan, as Jesus did to Peter. 
But Jesus blesses the church so that the church might be a picture of a redeemed community as a light upon a hill or upon a stand. So that the world might see that there's a better way. That the world might see that there is power in the blood. That the world might see that to be a Christian is to belong or is to be freed rather from all of the fracturing, all of the foolishness, all of the rebelliousness and wickedness of our world. And it is to enter into a place of community. A place where we can truly experience blessing. Where we can become whom God has made us to be. So the ascension of Jesus Christ, which can be applied in almost any direction in life, can also be applied in the context of church unity. I think that's an important thing for us to remember for two reasons. We're coming out of this pandemic, or are out of this pandemic, but we ought to appreciate that maybe there have been some words spoken, some wounds felt, some things that we regret now, and we need to look for a way to testify to Christ's kingship over us, to his equipping and enabling us to love one another by humbling ourselves, by reaching out to those that are maybe a little separated from us and by drawing them back in. We need to show the world that we can live in a community that loves. That's the second reason, isn't it? The world needs to see. The world as it decays and as it fractures, as it disappears and dissipates, needs to see that there's a more excellent way. needs to see that there is a truth in the name of Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord and Savior. The world needs to see that Jesus Christ is King. And they'll see it when we bend the knee, when we bow and offer ourselves to Him and show the world what it means to live in love. Let us answer this call. Let us live in this way and let us come before the Lord in prayer. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You that He is our ascended Lord. And we pray, Heavenly God and Father, that You would help us to live in the power of His grace and that You would cause us, O Heavenly God and Father, to show the world that Jesus Christ is King, not only in our words but also in our actions, and that they might see in the church a place of unity and a place of service and a place of love, even and especially, Lord, when we disagree. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.